0: This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere, get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports, I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at vioricom Simmons. Once again, v slash Simmons.
1: Give me one good reason why Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner don't end up together at the end of The Bodyguard. Spoiler alert, what is this movie's deal? The Bodyguard, 1992 romantic thriller, made like 400 million bucks worldwide. Soundtrack sold like 45 million copies worldwide. A lot of critics hated the movie. It was nominated for seven Razzies. If you don't know what the Razzies are, don't get involved. Those people are joyless. Whitney Houston plays a pop star. Kevin Costner plays her bodyguard. He's the best. He's brooding He doesn't get emotionally involved he throws knives he likes orange juice seriously he drinks like seven glasses of straight orange juice in this movie it's part of his charm he has two glasses of orange juice in one scene how can whitney houston resist she can't resist the first time they smooch it's right after he cuts the scarf she's wearing in half with a samurai sword roger ebert called that scene undeniably erotic don't try that at home though fellas that move won't work for you, Kevin Costner brewed some more. Various wildly implausible romantic thriller-type antics ensue. Remember when Whitney Houston's jealous sister confesses that she got stoned and accidentally hired an unstoppable assassin to murder Whitney Houston? but then the assassin murders the sister instead, and then Kevin Costner dives out a window and rolls instantly to his feet like he's Jackie Chan and chases the assassin into a snowy forest and shoots at him a bunch of times with his eyes closed because he's the best. Spoiler alert. Anyways, from there, it's Sister's Funeral, Poolside Brooding, then the Oscars, where Kevin Costner saves the day by taking a bullet for Whitney Houston, but he's fine, his arms in the sling, otherwise he's fine, and he and Whitney Houston say goodbye on an airport tarmac. Then her private plane starts taxiing, but then she yells, stop the plane, and runs off the plane, and runs back to him, and they smooch some more, and the camera spins around them as they're smooching, and the song that you knew was going to be playing is playing, and then they go their separate ways and don't end up up together don't do that romantic thriller directors it's obnoxious mick jackson director of the bodyguard and also director of volcano starring tommy lee jones i'm talking to you mick do whitney houston and kevin costner have spectacular movie star romantic chemistry no do they have decent regular people romantic chemistry also no but that's not the point the point is, if we've invested two hours watching two grouchy people get together, then they can't not be together at the end of the movie for literally no reason. It's contrived. It's way more contrived than two people ending up together for no reason. Fake bullshit downer endings are like 50 times cheesier than then fake bullshit happy endings. And don't give me this business that maybe Whitney and Kevin are still together. Maybe it's ambiguous. You want ambiguity? Go watch The Sopranos finale again. Get on the fucking plane, Kevin. What else you got going on at that point? If nothing else, there's probably some orange juice on the plane. Excuse me, that got out of hand. I get all riled up about contrived, downer endings in romantic thrillers. It's a part of my charm. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. I'm only slightly out of breath. You know the song. It's the song that's playing while Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner are smooching on the airport tarmac at the end of The Bodyguard. It's I Will Always Love You. I can't talk about it yet. I'm still too salty about the end of The Bodyguard. And when I'm all grouchy like this... When I need an attitude adjustment, when I need a straight shot of adrenaline, of conviction, of suspiciously comforting Reagan-era optimism, when I need to re-experience joy, then here's what I do. I crank up the old stereo and I blast the a cappella version of Whitney Houston's How Will I Know. How Will I Know, Whitney Houston's second number one single on the Billboard Hot 100 out of 11 number one singles total. This is one of three number ones from her debut album alone, the ballads saving all my love for you and the greatest love of all are the others. Of course, she called that album... Whitney Houston. It came out on Valentine's Day, 1985. This is pure, uncut, best case scenario, 1985 to me. This is looking at the past through rose-colored glasses personified. This is the giant bow in Whitney's hair in the How Will I Know video. This is peak 1985, right up there with Queen at Live Aid or the Goonies or the New York City area test market release of the original 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System, or the Topps Roger Clemens rookie card, or the way we as a society set aside our differences and joined hands as a nation to drag new coke. Almost had it all, didn't we?
2: Look into my eyes take me to the clouds above Mm-hmm
1: Whitney Houston was 21 years old. When her debut album came out, she was born in Newark, New Jersey. Her mother, Sissy Houston, was a famous gospel singer who sang backup for Elvis Presley and Aretha Franklin. Whitney's cousin was Dionne Warwick, of course, a super famous gospel and pop singer who would one day be the only tolerable person left on Twitter. In 1985, we didn't need Twitter. All we needed was Whitney Houston singing the word, Who. That's H-O-O-O-O-O-O. Who? How will I know? Don't
0: trust your feelings. How will I know?
1: There is instrumental accompaniment in the original chart-topping version of how will I know peppy keyboards and electric guitar and a day glow saxophone solo and whatnot that version is fine the music is lovely shout out music shout out Arista Records president and music biz master of the universe Clive Davis who quote unquote discovered Whitney Houston in a New York City nightclub sure you did but really all you ever need is Whitney Houston's voice right? The rest is noise. The rest, by comparison, is noise pollution. The less distraction, the better. The less context, the better. What if we just enjoyed this voice to the exclusion of all else? What if we just luxuriated in this voice? What if we transported ourselves back to the era when this woman had the most powerful voice in America and tried not to think too hard about how that era ended? but we know how this ends. Let's get this over with. Whitney Houston was found dead in a hotel bathtub in Beverly Hills on February 11th, 2012. She was 48. Her daughter, Bobby Christina Brown, died in 2015. She was 22. Now forget I told you that. I don't wanna talk about how this ends. We can respect the ending, but also free Whitney Houston's music. So much of which was buoyant and triumphant and revolutionary from the psychic weight of how this all ends. The tendency, if, for example, you're the director of a grim and heartbreaking and slightly tawdry Whitney Houston documentary, of which there are a few, is to only use the infectious, chart-smashing ecstasy of her music to underscore the plain fact that Whitney Houston, the human being, is an American tragedy. A song as perfect and ebullient as I Want to Dance with Somebody Who Loves Me is only valuable now to a prestige-adjacent filmmaker as ominous foreshadowing. But what if we set all that pathos aside and just danced? Or at least listened to Whitney, and only to Whitney, as she sang about wanting to dance. I want to dance with somebody who loves me. That parentheses is important. That parentheses gives the song depth, and yes, okay, maybe even an undertone of sadness but it doesn't retroactively cheapen the song. It doesn't try to turn the song into a fake bullshit downer ending. Don't even try that shit with this song. I really wish everybody would stop trying. So as you can see, I so desperately want to talk about Whitney Houston, but I am so desperate to avoid talking about say the last 30% of her life, you either know too much about all that or you don't need to know very much at all. I will talk about literally anything else. I will rant about the bodyguard at uncomfortable length. What else can we, the way Whitney Houston laughs during the bridge to I Wanna Dance With Somebody, can we talk about that? This is a person who is blissfully, radiantly alive. Let this person live. Let this person live on. Find other stuff to talk about. For example, put Whitney Houston in the Pop Star Laugh Hall of Fame. Let's build the Pop Star Laugh Hall of Fame and put Whitney Houston in it. And then let's give her company. Put Whitney right next to Janet Jackson at the end of When I Think of You. That's from Janet Jackson's album, Control, one of my favorite albums of all time. Janet Jackson passed on the song How Will I Know, actually. Whitney got it instead. Janet Jackson singing How Will I Know on Control. Just imagining that is a fun way to spend an afternoon. Control came out in 1986, the year after the first Whitney Houston record. The year after that... 1987, we get Whitney's second album. She calls this one just Whitney. Four straight number one singles off this record, starting with I Want to Dance with Somebody. You know what I want to talk about really? Key changes. Whitney Houston is the Mozart, the Picasso, the Frida, the Aretha, the Alpha and Omega of key changes. It's like you've been shot out of a cannon directly into another cannon, and then you get shot out of that one. The three other number one hits off the Whitney album were Didn't We Almost Have It All, So Emotional, and Where Do Broken Hearts Go. Heartbreaking song, Where Do Broken Hearts Go. Obviously, Where Broken Hearts Go is directly to your couch where you wear your pajamas for 72 hours straight and eat 10 gallons of ice cream. But the key change here feels like you're eating ice cream in your pajamas as you're shot out of a cannon into another cannon and then shot out of that one. God bless Janet Jackson, truly, but you can't actually imagine Janet Jackson singing Where Do Broken Hearts Go or How Will I Know or any other Whitney Houston song because there's no point in imagining anybody else singing any Whitney Houston song. At most, you can count on one hand the singers after or before Whitney who have ever even approached the sheer firepower of Whitney She started as a gospel singer, just like her mother. If you're looking for one historical source for the life of Whitney Houston, if you want the backstory and the context delivered in a way that honors the darkness without succumbing to that darkness or sensationalizing it, I recommend Robin Crawford's memoir, A Song for You, My Life with Whitney Houston, came out in 2019. Robin Crawford was pretty much Whitney's best friend and her most trusted assistant, business associate really. They met as teenagers in New Jersey. She called Whitney Nippy because pretty much everyone who knew her did. Robin writes with genuine tenderness about how she and Whitney were lovers at first until Whitney started to become a huge star and gave Robin a Bible and told her they couldn't be together romantically anymore. Whitney wanted to have children and she didn't want to go to hell. But Whitney also told her You know what we shared. Robin's book, on the one hand, nods to decades of tawdry, tabloid, Whitney Houston headlines. You know, gal pal, secret life. The stuff the press fixated on with Whitney before they started fixating on drugs. When this book gets dark, it gets dark. When Bobby Brown, Whitney's future husband and ex-husband, enters the picture, it gets dark. But you never lose Robin's reverence, platonic and otherwise, for Whitney. You never lose her reverence for Whitney's voice. Uh, ooh, ooh, another rad key change on the Whitney album, the song Love is a Contact Sport. If you were at the gym in 1987, wearing a neon leotard, one presumes, and you timed it right, you could bench press 600 pounds at the exact moment the key change hits in Love is a Contact Sport. For me the most striking scene in robin crawford's book comes near the beginning it's when robin goes to the new hope baptist church in newark to hear her new friend whitney sing to hear whitney truly perform for the first time they're still teenagers at this point whitney hasn't yet been discovered at this point but robin describes so beautifully the sensation of watching a rapt church full of people watch Whitney Houston sing the gospel standard, He Decided to Die. The writing isn't flashy. It doesn't need to be. Robin writes, Before she even opened her mouth, I heard murmurs. Members of the congregation were bracing themselves. Robin writes, She'd opened high, and as her voice rose, she brought us higher. People couldn't contain themselves. Robin writes, her singing was open and vulnerable, angelic and powerful. On that day, I sat in that church and I watched that little body stand there in that white robe and fill the place with her voice. Robin writes, I didn't need her to convince me that there was a higher power. I already believed that, but I felt nearer to God and closer to Whitney. Robin writes, of the moment after the song ends, one woman had passed out and two rather large and strong white-gloved nurses were fanning her to help bring her back. Tears streamed down the faces of many women and some of the men. It's a miracle the walls didn't just open up and let everything fall. She was a wonder.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at vioricom Simmons. Once again, vuor slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by cars.com.
1: Let's do another one, another one. One Moment in Time, the song for the 1988 Summer Olympics, the key change in one moment in time. Look under your chairs. You get a gold medal. 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 I keep almost calling songs like One Moment in Time power ballads, but that's a rock band term historically. The power comes from the electric guitars, theoretically. But I don't care how many Marshall stacks you've got stacked up behind you. Outside of Eddie Van Halen and maybe Slash, ain't no 80s guitar god serving up more raw power than Whitney Houston holding a microphone. The microphone doesn't even have to be plugged into anything. And singing whatever the hell Whitney Houston felt like singing no matter how anybody might have felt at the time about what she felt like singing a crucial and vexing part of early Whitney Houston lore is that she was booed at the soul train music awards during the ceremony for two consecutive years. In 1988 when she was announced as a nominee for best music video then again in 1989 when she was announced as a nominee for best r&b urban contemporary single by a female she was booed ostensibly for not being r&b urban contemporary enough for not sounding black enough for being too pop i guess the great critic and blogger rich Juzwiak wrote a rad old gawker piece about this Both grim Whitney documentaries will tell you that Whitney was shaken to her core by those booze. Robin Crawford's book says it wasn't that serious. But with Whitney Houston's third album, 1990's I'm Your Baby Tonight, the theory... Or at least the media narrative was that she wanted to highlight her uh r b urban contemporary side in practice given that this was 1990 what this meant is that she made great and quite honestly frightening songs that sounded like angry janet jackson or for that matter angry michael jackson Shout out susan my favorite song on i'm your baby tonight is the power ballad miracle though perhaps you prefer the power ballad all the man that i need and why wouldn't you there's a key change after the sex solo Let's see you boo that, you ingrates. I'm Your Baby Tonight was technically a step down commercially. It peaked at number three on the Billboard album chart and sold a mere four million copies or so, whereas Whitney's first two albums both hit number one and in fact both went diamond, meaning at least 10 million copies sold in the United States. Her debut album in 1985 sold more than 20 million copies and still makes lists of the best-selling albums of all time. But despite all that truly bonkers early success in the early 90s, peak Whitney hadn't yet arrived. And then, peak Whitney arrived. Multiple peaks, really, to peak Whitney. First, of course, there is her rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner at the 1991 Super Bowl. With all due respect to victorious New York Giants running back Otis Anderson... One touchdown and 102 yards on just 21 carries. Whitney Houston was the true MVP of the 1991 Super Bowl. No key changes in Whitney's version of the Star-Spangled Banner. Still the best version of the national anthem since Marvin Gaye at the 1983 NBA All-Star Game. And I will never, ever forget the ascending chords as she sang just the word brave. If you're not up on the Ringer podcast Black Girl Songbook, it's a fantastic show hosted by the great Danielle Smith. We talked to her on this show about TLC's No Scrubs a while back. Black Girl Songbook is phenomenal, all of it. And the very first episode is about Whitney Houston's performance of the Star-Spangled Banner. My favorite part of that episode, though, is when Danielle alludes briefly to the next peak chronologically in the mountain range that is Peak Whitney. See if you can guess what song Danielle's talking about here. And you can be sick of it if you want to be. You can say it's too much or you can say it's not enough. But me and 8 trillion other fans will love it for you. So, bye. You guessed it. Danielle was talking about I Will Always Love You. The Bodyguard, which marked Whitney Houston's feature film debut, hit theaters in November 1992. It was the second biggest movie of 1992 overall, after Aladdin. The cartoon version of Aladdin. I apologize for earlier. The romantic chemistry between Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner is fine. It's fine. They're fine. It's a chill vibe. Would you come to appreciate amid all that overheated romantic thriller melodrama? Remember the creepy guy who's actually sending Whitney Houston's character all the ransom note type death threats? Except it turns out he's harmless otherwise. He's just a creepy guy. What a bizarre movie. Robin Crawford, in her memoir, assures us that Kevin Costner was a perfect gentleman and that Whitney told him, just don't put your tongue in my mouth. And Kevin, to his credit, didn't. No one really cares about The Bodyguard, the movie, though. And here is why.
0: If I should stay.
1: Whitney Houston's version of I Will Always Love You begins with 45 seconds of her singing a cappella. But already, in just those 45 seconds of just Whitney Houston singing quietly, power ballad. More power, more force than November rain or like Stairway to Heaven. An unprecedented amount of power for a power ballad. Picture the Great Wall of China except it's built entirely from Marshall Stacks. That much power. A Marshall Stack is a famous giant guitar amplifier. Do kids today know about Marshall Stacks? Don't answer that, kids. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt Whitney in mid-sentence.
0: I would only be in your
1: way I Will Always Love You, of course, was written and first recorded by the one, the only, Dolly Parton in 1973. There's a cool WNYC podcast called Dolly Parton's America that devotes a whole episode to I Will Always Love You. Dolly, just at the beginning of her own superstar career in the late 60s and early 70s, was the esteemed recurring guest, the girl singer, on the delightful live television program The Porter-Wagoner Show. Porter-Wagoner at the time was a much bigger country star. Porter and Dolly sang a ton of hit duets together, a ton. 13 albums of duets spread over 12 years. For a time, he did wonders for her career, And she did wonders for his. Maybe they were romantically involved. Maybe they weren't. Maybe he cut one of her scarves in half with a samurai sword. Probably he didn't. But by the mid-70s, Dolly had fully eclipsed him as a star, as a cultural phenomenon. It was time for her to leave the Porter-Wagoner show, in whatever sense you prefer to think of it, to leave Porter. Dolly wrote, I will always love you, not so much for Porter, as she wrote it at Porter
2: should stay
1: this is a startling and tender love song but make no mistake that is the tenderest possible way to say i am not staying
2: i would only be in you. way
1: and that is the tenderest possible way to say you're in my way That's diplomacy, folks. That's show business. That's love. I Will Always Love You, Smell You Later. I Will Always Love You, within its first decade of public acclaim, becomes a standard. Many fine singers, many fine versions. So Kevin Costner hears Linda Ronstadt's version of I Will Always Love You from 1975 and suggests that Whitney Houston sing it as the boffo closing number of the blockbuster romantic thriller Kevin and Whitney are starring in called the bodyguard. And Dolly's thrilled at that prospect. Dolly's going to make a fortune off this cover. Like, the gross domestic product of Belarus in 1992, that's how much money Dolly's going to make off this one cover of her song over the course of the 90s. That's $10 million or so, reportedly. That was an obnoxious way to put it. I'm sorry. And here, perhaps, we've cracked the case of what's the fucking deal with the end of the movie, the bodyguard. The question is, what percentage of the trillions of people who love Whitney Houston's version of I Will Always Love You, understand that this was the spirit in which Dolly Parton wrote the song. Do you get an It's Not You, It's Me vibe off Whitney Houston's version of this song? The cold hard fact is that Dolly's I Will Always Love You is a breakup song, gracefully disguised as a cosmic tragic sheesh for some strange reason we just can't be together even though we both totally love each other equally type song does that same spirit animate whitney's version i'm actually asking i can't hear your answer but i am asking
2: we both know i'm not what you you need
1: you're not what I need. Is it clear to you that that's what Whitney's saying? Is that what Whitney's saying? Is that what Whitney's character in The Bodyguard is saying? What is up with Whitney's character in The Bodyguard? Seriously, spoiler alert, plot-wise, this movie goes, sister shot by assassin, stonedly hired by sister, funeral for sister, brewed by the pool for an afternoon, and then Oscars. It feels like 48 hours of real-time Top's. We all grieve in our own way. I'm not going to rant about this again, but there is no clearly stated reason why Whitney and Kevin can't be together at the end of this movie. Or I should say, it sure doesn't seem like one of them specifically is super not into it anymore. Maybe they're both kind of not into it at that point, spinning airport tarmac kiss aside. And that's the tragedy, though that sort of mutual apathy-based tragedy is not historically the stuff of world historical power ballads. But on the other hand, who gives a hoot about any of this when you got Whitney Houston singing this chorus? I would like to pause here briefly and note that much of the rest of the Bodyguard soundtrack slaps, if you'll forgive the phrase, if you'll forgive me using the phrase. To repeat, the Bodyguard soundtrack has sold something like 45 million copies worldwide on best-selling albums of all-time lists. It's usually sandwiched between Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon and that Eagle's Greatest Hits album. I always thought it was a hot air balloon on the cover of that Eagles record. It's a painted Eagle skull. Dude, I had that wrong for 40 years. Anyways, what I wanted to say was that Whitney singing Queen of the Night on the Bodyguard soundtrack, fantastic. Boo this in greats. Really what I wanted to say is that this song reminds me of one of my other favorite songs, which is Free Your Mind by En Vogue, Pride of Oakland, California, off their Funky Divas record, which was also 1992. Early 90s R&B divas yelling at you is one of my favorite musical genres. Fun fact about me, if my blood alcohol level rises above 0.085, I automatically teleport to the nearest karaoke bar and start doing Free Your Mind. I don't know why I'm bringing this up right now. Right, the Bodyguard soundtrack. I Have Nothing by Whitney Houston, power ballad, killer key change, and I have nothing. But really, and my apologies that it took this long to get to this point, the bottom line here, after four solid seconds of silence, is this key change. If my blood alcohol level ever rises above 0.285, I may teleport to the moon and attempt this. And then the movie ends. And Kevin Costner is not on the plane. And I'm pissed off that Kevin Costner is not on the plane. And then real life Whitney Houston does a bunch of other stuff. And a bunch of other stuff happens to real life Whitney Houston. Some of what happens is great. Some of it constitutes one of the greatest artistic and personal tragedies of my generation. I try not to think about it. I'd rather not talk about it. This is the ending I want, Whitney Houston in 1992. She was the precise opposite of a natural disaster. She was the eighth wonder of the world. Whitney Houston in 1992 was the key change. And in this moment, for the rest of time, as the credits roll, at least Whitney Houston is still on the plane. Our guest today is Garrick Kennedy, critic and author of Parental Discretion is Advised, The Rise of N.W.A. and The Dawn of Gangster Rap. His next book, Didn't We Almost Have It All, in defense of Whitney Houston, comes out in early 2022. Thank you so much for being
2: here, Garrick. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. Uh, on your publisher's website, it says one major theme of your book is the shame that she carried in her heart which informed every facet of her life. Like how would you describe that shame? Like even among her fans
2: is that shame still fundamentally misunderstood? I believe so, and I and and I think um that's why I thought it was so important to make shame such a central theme of the book because it's not just her own. It's ours as well. Um, It is the shame that comes from being in the church, being the one to make it in the family that was already kind of in the orbit of pop stardom. It's the shame that comes with being a Black woman in America and what that looks like, what that looks like then, what it still looks like now, but definitely what it looked like then, because that informed so much of how she moved to the industry and also how she was received by not yeah. just her people, but, you know, us at large. And so there was all these complexities to shame that I thought, now that we have different language in the way that we see the world and the way that we see artists, especially pop artists, right. I wanted us to have a moment to kind of reexamine those things. And so it was really impossible to do that and not really focus on shame. Um, sure. And this, this big idea that it wasn't just her own it was ours and what it was what we placed on her and um that idea about it being misunderstood I think still exists because we're only just learning some things about her it's only been the last couple of years um, with some documentaries with some family members having um, different conversations with us right yeah um, and also you know we finally got Robin Crawford's story and that was huge. That was the last really big puzzle piece. And so I think once you start pulling apart all of these layers of shame that she carried with the drugs, you know, with the drinking, um, with her marriage, with her sexuality, with the way that she saw herself and the way that we saw her there was just so much to unpack and and that became really interesting to write about and it was ultimately about kind of introducing some scholarship around whitney that i think only now has started to come to the surface because we've gotten these movies and we've gotten some um more transparency from her family
1: right i i agree with you i like robin crawford's memoir was the real revelation for me? Like I think that did the best job, you know, of all the movies of all the things that have been written of celebrating what made Whitney great without getting bogged down in how it ended. I are we better equipped now to understand the relationship between Robin and Whitney than we were in like
2: nineteen ninety two? It feels like night and day. Yeah, it does. Feel, it does feel like night and day. But I still, I still almost kind of put an asterisk next to it because I, there's there's a way in which. I don't believe we've moved on from the idea that she couldn't have possibly wanted to then be in a relationship with Bobby. I still think there's this thinking that her falling in love with Bobby, marrying Bobby, having a child with Bobby was about pushing back on how we saw her in these rumors in this idea that she was closeted, you know, and all these things, which, honestly, May possibly be, I mean, we, we're we not going to know because there's some of this, you know, that the only person that can tell us that is Whitney and she's not here. Um, right. So that's why I do think even though there's better language around understanding and definitely far more compassion now than it was, you know, for her in the 90s. And that's just with also the media and the way that, you know, she was talked about on radio, the way that I mean, you know, one of the things that is still so crazy to me is that she sat with Katie Kirk for a primetime interview. And Katie Kirk is asking her multiple questions about a relationship that actually was not our business. Like, she was right. married to a man and had been married for years. And even if she, it, you know, it was the fact that she was married to someone else. And so to continue to ask these questions about, well, what happened with this part? I just, it felt irresponsible in a way that obviously we would not do now but that's sure. just where we were then and we didn't right. have any role models who were black or queer or even white and queer in the mainstream space in the way at, at a level that Whitney was was famous right we didn't have some of the things that we have been able to see and like break the ground in so I do think there's a way in which like the relationship is better understood, but I still think, you know, I keep that asterisk there because I still think that there's a lot of people who still question it and still, even after Robin, you know, her truth was just like, well, was that the whole truth? And like, are you Mm -hmm. sure you weren't like paid off to, you know, not say something for all these years? Or were you paid off to like pretend, you know, that you two weren't still carrying on when she was with Bobby. And I just don't believe that to be true because I do think that, Hearing from Robin, who was that last puzzle piece, um, yeah. and her kind of walking us through their early days when they were physical with one another, I knew what that was. I was able to connect what that was. I was, a- And a lot of people who are queer understood what that was and understood what that dynamic was and how easy it could have been to then transition into a friendship, into a really close friendship for a mm-hmm. long time. And all those things made sense to me, but I do think that because... It was a person who fought back against every single question about um, her sexuality, and a lot of it was rooted in anger that was being thrown onto her about why don't you want to talk about it, Um, despite the obvious reasons why she wouldn't want to talk about it. I think because we never saw her really have a real honest conversation, there's going to always be the question.
1: Sure. Uh, early in Whitney's career, especially, she was often attacked because her music wasn't black enough. She got booed at the Soul Train Awards, like Al Sharpton called her Whitey Houston. And sort of the narrative is that's another thing that drove Whitney toward Bobby Brown, because, you know, Bobby was being accepted by some of the same people who were criticizing Whitney. Does anything about that argument make sense at all to you in retrospect, that there was all this questioning of
2: Whitney's, if that she was genuine? As it relates to the music? uh, As it relates to the music, yeah. Yeah. um, It's the one thing I have had a hard time with. As time has gone on, the one thing that has always struck me when I would go back and read some of the early reviews from the LA Times and New York Times and Rolling Stone and all these places that was covering her, I thought it was so interesting how none of them could actually identify that this is what a lot of pop soul sounded like, you right. know, that was sung by black people. And that's, it was just something where the attitude toward the music was you wanted an identifier of blackness in a way that a lot of people who also were black were looking for, right? Mm-hmm. It was edge. It was. Having really transparent conversations around relationships, like that's something that R&B has just always been so rooted in. And there was a way sure. where it was really like romanticized. And it was like this fairy tale that just didn't feel authentic to like the experience of what it was like to like be black and in love because so much of, you know, our, um, relationship with black love, quote unquote, is rooted in like a Marvin Gaye or it's rooted in, you know, it's rooted in kind of these moments where it feels so black, right? And it's that mm-hmm. soul feeling that I believe so many folks just didn't find in her music. And I understand that. I've always actually understood that as as a, as a belief. But what I couldn't ever accept was this idea that she wasn't doing, and I do say, quote-unquote, Black music, because I always want somebody to define what that is to them. And I think, right, right. you know, there's a lot of people who are going to just say, oh, well, it's R&B or it's hip-hop. And it's like, well, yes, but she was doing R&B music. Right. Um, it just might not have been the R&B that you liked because it wasn't Anita Baker R&B. But... It was contemporary R&B before we had contemporary, and that's the other side of what you know Whitney was doing. Was she was a couple years ahead of what was then going to become the sound of pop music, the sound of R&B music for quite some time, and even still now. But she was caught in that in between where it was like she was right before um, New Jack Swing, and she was right at the the edge of hip hop. And so there was a way in which like the audience was like looking. At this woman who was a black girl from the hood and it's just like, oh, so yeah. this is what you're trying to sing? Well, hmm. I don't know, you know, and so I I got it. But I always especially those first, you know, two albums where I'm like, these are just like really standard R&B ballads. Right. And I don't understand, you know, why there is this feeling that is not black enough. And, and maybe it's because it was just really sappy. Right. That's that's so much of what a lot of the early stuff was. It was really, really sappy music.
1: Or just too popular
2: or too almost. popular, yeah,
1: yeah. I, when you look at pop stars, r and b stars now, like are they freer than Whitney Houston was in her prime? Like Demi Lovato, you know, just put out an album, and the video for one song is a recreation of her real life drug overdose from a couple years ago. Like, would it have helped Whitney if she could have been more honest about her struggles in her music?
2: Yes and no. Um, because I, I think, you know, and, and Demi is a great example of the reality that if Demi Lovato was a black girl who had overdosed, there would have been no way she would be treated this way. There would be no way that she would be celebrated, accepted, mm-hmm. propped up. Now. I want to walk that back a little bit because I do think that, yes, now we have a little bit more compassion for people with addiction regardless of the color. But I do still firmly believe that there's a way in which the coverage would have looked a certain kind of way if it was, say... Normani from Fifth Harmony that had overdosed it. Right? I don't think there would have been space for her to have a soft place to land when she decided to make, you know, a new record talking about it. I just don't believe that we treat our Black girls and women that way at all. We, there's just, there's too many examples um, of that. I mean, look at the way that people police Lizzo's body. Look at the way that, you know, folks get so angry at Beyonce who after giving us all that she wanted to and all that she played every level of this industry in the way that you want it. And so when she decided to make music about herself, about her people and the liberation of her people, it's, oh my God, well, you know, she's a racist and she hates white people and she hates Mm. cops. And, you know, all this way that she then started being spoken about is that she was not the same Beyonce that gave us single ladies in Halo, for Christ's sake. So (laughs) I just don't think, I don't think it would have fully helped her. It would have helped her some. It would have been a selling point. I think critics would have Mm -hmm. loved it. They would have celebrated her. They would have, you know, propped her up in a particular way. But I just think that then it would have still been the same cycle of like, you know, Wendy Williams, who would know better, but she's going to lean in even more like, oh, now this is what you're doing. I just don't, you know, I think there's so many ways in which it would have been weaponized against her because even when she Started being honest with us. It was weaponized against us because the first time that she missed a note, oh, well, she must be high. The, Mm -hmm. you know, the first time that it was like, well, you know, the performances are not as strong. Well, you know, maybe, maybe she was drinking before or maybe, you know, something was going on. There was a way in which, like, once she started talking to us about what was really happening with her, we treated her even worse. So I, I, I have a hard time that thinking that if she then made music that was specifically addressing it versus, you know, a song like I didn't know my own strength, which like anybody mm-hmm. could have sang, um, but it just applied to her life. But it didn't tell us anything forthright. I just don't think that there would have been that much of a difference in the way that she was seen or treated.
1: Sure. Uh, the movies, the documentaries in particular, there was Nick Broomfield's Whitney, Can I Be Me in 2017 and Kevin McDonald's Whitney in 2018. Are these successful movies in your opinion? Like, do they feel exploitive? Do they feel necessary?
2: Uh, in my opinion, both were successful. Both were also very necessary. And I am very partial to Can I Be Me. And the reason that that is, is because that is I mean, you know, you take away the fact that it then had to circle back around to it. It is a straight ahead concert doc. And I mm. think those are always really great because we can see an artist where they are at that particular point in their life. Mm. And I am a huge fan of My Love is Your Love. I think it's her best album. Mm. Um And that was her, to me, her best concert. And to then see kind of the pain that she was in, which is really clear in that movie, was really hard to watch yeah. and it was, it made me feel closer to her, um, because I was experiencing her life at that time through her eyes and in her circle and like seeing her and Robin together and reading their body language together, seeing her with Bobby, seeing Bobby and Robin, just seeing the way that she was when she was not on stage and seeing that, yes, this was someone who was having a difficult time. That yeah. made me feel like I said, really close to her, but it also made me learn so much about her and it gave me a view of her that I hadn't seen. Whereas, um, you know, the Whitney doc, obviously the participation of her family makes that really important because, you know, they were going through their own reckoning on camera, but yeah. it doesn't, it's not lost on me that Sissy's only in it for a second because, you know, as, Sort of the investigation of you know her life was happening through these interviews with people. We started to kind of pick up on some facts that were not going to be great to handle. And so there's a way in which you know watching the family like fight back. I mean, I think at one point in that movie, you know, Bobby says like, "Oh, you know, drugs didn't matter. Why are we talking about drugs?" And it's like, "That's I not what killed her. Yeah. It's not what killed her." And I understand. I understand that idea because. The way that we were in relationship to Whitney and her drug use was very counterproductive to the reality of drug use, which people get high, you know, yeah. and it, and it, it never felt like she was doing anything wrong. And I know that she didn't feel like she was doing anything wrong. And it's the same way that, you know, as much as we remember, you know, the crack is whack line, that's the same interview where she's like, we're rock stars. This is what we do, and it's like, yes, <laughs> right. that is true. However, you and Bobby are still black people who are really famous, and you're doing a drug that is considered, when you are black, doing it to be wrong, mm-hmm. and it's not going to be glorified the way as Ozzy Osbourne or Keith Dave Richards, or anybody else. Keith Richards, any of any of these rock gods who would sit and just like make music about getting high talk about being high in interviews, and no one is batting an eye. It's just not Mm. the same. And part of that is her image, but a great deal of that is because she was a Black woman, and I don't think we've had enough honest conversations about that. So that's why I do believe those two documentaries are successful, because they are both these far extremes, and Mm -hmm. they do strip back a lot of layers, and you learn a lot, and it's really important to hear on camera one of her friends say Whitney was fluid, the same way it was really Mm -hmm. important to have somebody have that acknowledgement of, yes, I was doing drugs with her when she was 14 to 15. I was giving her drugs when she was 16 yeah. years old. That needed to exonerate Bobby in a way that I think we would have ne- gotten if she had not passed away. We'd have continued to always believe Bobby was the problem, and that was mm-hmm. it. And so there's a way in which these two documentaries helped bring a lot of understanding. Um, but, you know, they're films, and so... There's a short amount of time that you can show some of these things, so I really enjoyed being able to focus on, you know, certain aspects that just as a fan and also as somebody who I I, I love to say that I'm you know proudly a scholar of R&B. Like I've dedicated my yeah. entire career to um, documenting R&B and hip hop, but especially you know R&B. I don't think there's a lot of scholarship around it, and especially our architects and somebody like Whitney. I just thought there's too many connections to be made. That still haven't been made because no one has given her the space to be looked at that way. She's seen as a sad, cautionary tale. And yes, some Mm -hmm. of that is true. But there's so many more things about her that are true and that are fascinating and that are compelling. Yeah.
1: Is The Bodyguard a good movie?
2: Bodyguard. Okay. Well, <laughs> no. I mean, we have. To, I <laughs> want to be honest. It's not. It mm. is a movie I love because it's sure. Whitney and the and the soundtrack is incredible. Mm-hmm. But the bodyguard is not a good. And this is why it's actually not a good movie because you have built a really lovely and cheesy romantic, you know, drama around a superstar pop singer and actress who is nominated for an Academy Award in her, in her bodyguard. And yeah, sure, that works for me. But in 1992, mm-hmm. you think that you're going to have a Black superstar dating her white bodyguard and there's no conversation to be had about it. Mm-hmm. And you also have this moment where she is... Needing a bodyguard because there is someone who is trying to murder her and does something as disgusting as, like, masturbating her house. You know, there was all these layers to it where it was like, why are we ignoring this? (laughs) And even if you just, even if I can shelve all that because that's high concept, what I couldn't shelve is the fact that you still have this movie that is about... Hollywood in its orbit and you don't even explore that like the way that like a star is born explores the, the mechanics right. of the industry like you're right. not even getting into that and I thought that was kind of interesting and then there's the issue with like the sister who was like she hired a hitman <laughs> wow. to, to snuff wow. her and we don't we don't address it we don't get <laughs> we, into it at we all. sure don't she admits it right. and like oh what we do with that character is we just let's just treat her like the tragic mulatto and like she's gonna get killed And Mm -hmm. that's kind of it. And we can move on from that character. So it's, it's not a good movie (laughs) at all, but it's a fun movie that I love a great deal. And funny enough, actually the book opens with me writing about the bodyguard because it's my, it's my entry into really loving Whitney. Like I had seen her in these music videos. Um, Mm -hmm. but I loved movies and I loved music and I loved pop music and I loved R&B. And so like this marriage of it, like that made me so excited. And I watched that film in awe. And then as I got older, I just would be like, "Wow, they went through the effort of like recreating like music videos." And she's like at the Academy Awards, and there's like a sniper is here, and we're just not having some of these conversations <laughs> right, yeah. about it. They're just glossing over things like, "Oh, their first date is at a country western bar," and she's the only black person in here. No and one nobody notices. Noticed. No yeah. one noticed. There's just there's just no way. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: It's a it's a great bad movie. That's I think you've got it nailed. I, by the numbers, I will always love you is the biggest Whitney Houston song of all time. Is it her best song? Is it even her signature song to
2: you? It becomes her signature song because to me, I will always love you really felt like the birthplace of the style of singing that then is what we focused on, which is like high melisma like that like mm-hmm. that way of singing and like the crescendo ballad and all. there Key was so change. many things there were so many things that she was doing on that record that i think shifted pop music and and something that is still what so many people aspire to do on record when you think of an ariana when you think of an adele when you mm-hmm. think of so many of these women like that is kind of the model and Yes, I a thousand percent think it's her signature record. And I also think it's one of, I think it's one of her best, but it's also, you know, frankly, it's a song that, that imprisoned her because it's like, Mm. if she couldn't sing it that way for the rest of her life, then we were going to have a very strong opinion about her. And we ended up doing that. We, we did that because she couldn't perform that song in that way with that power forever. We completely just dismissed her as, as, as a great. And that's, and that's a shame to me. Who could have? Because I, you know, who could have been able to maintain, um, particularly those runs at the end? Just my, my goodness. Like it's, (laughs) it's hard that boom and I like over and over and over and over and over over. for decades. Like Mm -hmm. nobody's doing that. Nobody can do that. I don't think nobody should be expected to do that, but that's, it's where we were with her. And that's, and that's a bit of a bummer.
1: Yeah. When you listen to Whitney's most joyful and triumphant moments now, you know, the Star-Spangled Banner or How Will I Know, does the tragedy of how her life ended sap some of that joy now? Like, do we honor her by always keeping that arc in mind? Or do we honor a song like I Want to Dance with Somebody by forgetting all that and just dancing to it?
2: I think you've got to do a little bit of both. And, you know, I I write about my... Uh, challenges with trying to move on and the grief of that loss and the sadness over it. And also the guilt and frankly, like, that we all played a role in someone's downfall in a particular kind of way, even though, yes, this is an adult who made their own choices. Um, that kept me from her music for a really long time. I mean, I'll be honest. If if it was on the radio and I heard it, I didn't cut it off or anything, but mm-hmm. me actively going and playing it, and this is somebody I would play her records all the time, I just didn't for a couple of years. And part of that was just me needing to, like, grieve, which I realize it now, but... Um, it's really easy for me to separate the two when I hear, especially the joyful things and mm-hmm. a lot of the, a lot of the dance records, especially it's, it's when I get into um like the preacher's wife soundtrack and like when she was really in her like pocket with the gospel that I know was so foundational to who she was. And like frankly mm-hmm. would have made her happy to sing for the rest of her life. That's where I get, it, you know, I get choked up and, it, and it's really hard to to listen mm-hmm. to that. But I pretty much will play um, the I'm Your Baby Tonight album all the time. And I dance to it and have a great time with it. Same for My Love Is Your Love. Same Mm -hmm. for the early stuff. That sadness, it starts to kick in when it's like, if I'm, you know, if I think of the gospel album, if I think of just Whitney, when I can only associate that era with, Mm -hmm. you know, the downfall. And I hate to use that word, but that's just what that time period was. And so that's hard. Sure. Uh, Gary, this has been great. Thank you so much for being yeah, here. Yeah, thank you. This was, is this was excellent.
1: Thanks so much to our guest this week, Garrick Kennedy. Thanks, as always, to our producers, Justin Sales and Isaac Lee. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. And now, without further ado, here is Whitney Houston with I Will Always Love You. We'll see you next week.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm.